Well, Happy New Year. It is good to have you here. Those of you here in this room, it's great to have you with us. Those of you in Skagit, so glad that you've joined us, and uh, it's good to, to be with you today, as well as those who are online with the live stream. Thanks for joining us. And those in Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, uh, good to have you with us today as well. Before I get into our, our time together, this talk today, I'd like to just spend a couple minutes, and I want to just say thank you to all of you who were involved in our Christmas Eve services. Uh, amazing the generosity of your time and beyond that with our gift of grub. <clears throat> we were able to give just under 13,000 pounds of food to the food banks of Whatcom and Skagit County. So thank you guys. Thank you very much for your generosity. The amount of help that that will be for families as they go into the winter months uh, is tremendous. And also for the literally the hundreds of you that volunteered um, over the course of our six services in Skagit and here in Bellingham uh, to be able to make that possible. Some of you volunteered for a service or multiple services or the entire day. And it was an incredible time to for Skagit, and this is the seventh year that we've had Christmas at our Skagit campus, it was their largest attended um, Christmas Eve services uh, ever, so that was an exciting deal. Uh, here in Bellingham, at our three o'clock service, in the 112-year history of this church, the three o'clock service on Christmas Eve was the single largest service we've ever, ever had in over a century. This room was completely packed. There were 150 people in the loft, 140 people overflowing in the commons, and then those that got turned away at the road. But anyway, it was an amazing, amazing time uh, over those six services. And uh, with the, the special thing we tried at the loft this year, it was just great. Uh, so I just want to say thank you so much. And it, it can get a little overwhelming when you talk about the hundreds and the thousands and the pounds and all this stuff. But let me just tell you a little bit of the specifics because many of you not only volunteered and gave, you prayed and you invited. And instead of just talking about the thousands of people, let me tell you about a couple of individuals. There was a man uh, who has grown children in their 30s and his son, who's out of, uh, out of town, said, Dad, what do you want for Christmas this year? And he says, I only have one desire. And that is that my kids would be at church with me on Christmas Eve. And Christmas Eve, right back here, uh, he and his 30-year-old son, 30-some-year-old son, were back there to be able to hear the message, to be able to celebrate the birth of Christ. Last summer, um, as I came back from my sabbatical, there were some letters on my desk, and uh, there was some correspondence from an inmate at the large correctional uh, facility down in Yakult, Washington, out, outside of Vancouver. And so we began corresponding late summer and throughout the fall, uh, I would send him scriptures and try to encourage him in his walk. And, and as we got into the early fall, he was talking about how he was going to be released from incarceration and what were his options. And I told him about some stuff here in Whatcom County. Anyway, he got out of, got out of uh, Larch in uh, October, I believe it was, and actually settled in Seattle. And we've kind of stayed in contact. And he, uh, he emailed me. Um, the week before Christmas, and he says, hey, I'm going to be coming up to Bellingham. I have relatives there. I'm going to be spending Christmas up there. And so I said, man, I would love to have you at one of our Christmas Eve services. And he came, and I got to, to talk with him, embrace him, and, and my heart was just so glad that he was able to hear about the, the word that became flesh and came full of grace for him, grace that was too good to be missed, and truth, the truth that, that is such good news. Uh, I met a lady after the uh, three o'clock service, and, and she said, you know, my whole life I've, I, I've believed something, but now I've figured it out. What I've believed but didn't have a name for is Jesus, and gave her heart to the Lord. And just to hear these kind of individual stories, 
It's not just the hundreds and the thousands. It's the individual ones that Jesus came for. And I wonder before we go any further, if you would just join me as we thank God for what he has done and what he is doing in our midst. Jesus, we do thank you that you are the eternal God and you are the, the God who loves each individual. We're thankful for the way that, that you poured out your grace upon us. We're thankful for our Christmas Eve services and the people that came and heard that message. We're thankful for those who took a step across the line of faith and have started a relationship with you. And I pray that you would just surround them with your spirit. You would protect them from the enemy, that the seeds that were planted would become fruitful and, and, and just allow them to flourish in you. God, we pray for those who heard the message and who are still thinking about that. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, that you would bring that truth back to mind, that you are a God who loves them, that you have nothing but grace and truth, that you extend that to them and invite them into your family, into your kingdom. And we pray that you would continue to draw them to your side. So we just wanna thank you, give you praise for that, and ask that you would continue to do what only you can do. And it's in your name we pray, amen, amen. So it's a new year. 2019, and at this time of year, very often it's, it's this time where we like review the past year or the past settings. We reset things and then we resolve. We, we make these resolutions going forward. And this isn't anything new. Some of you do this every year. Some of you gave up on this years ago. You don't even try, and that's okay. But some of you have these resolutions you make, and maybe they're physical. You want to get in better shape. You want to drop a few pounds, bring the cholesterol level down, blood pressure, whatever. That's wonderful. For some of you, it's financial. You want to get out of debt. You want to, you know, make some advances in your career. Maybe, you know, make more money this year, whatever that, that's great. Some of it's relational. You want to have some, some better health in your relationships. You maybe want to end some that are toxic and have some boundaries there. What's interesting is that very often, the most overlooked area of our life, and maybe the most important, is in the area of spiritual matters. But the truth is the fact that some of you are here today or maybe watching online or have joined us, this may be a part of your resolution that you've said this year, I wanna explore the faith, I I wanna get deeper, I wanna get back in my relationship with Christ and I wanna encourage you with that. But we have these times where we look back and say, what went well, what could we do differently, how do we wanna change this? Even though the New Year's is just another day of flipping of the calendar, it's like this time where we say we can reset here and we can do things differently in the future. And we do this as individuals, sometimes in families, businesses will do this, organizations. And likewise, as the church, we need to recalibrate and refocus as well. Because as a church, it could be easy for us to drift a little bit, like a car that's just kind of out of alignment and starts just drifting a little bit, like a a guitar that slowly goes out of tune and just needs to be retuned. Because as the church, if we begin to drift, worst case scenario, if we don't correct that, we can eventually completely go off the rails. And that has happened in the past, not necessarily here, but in other, other settings. More likely, it's not completely going off the rails, it's just a distraction where we might put our energies and our pursuits and our time towards some things that are not necessarily bad. They're not evil things. In fact, they might even be good things, but they're not the primary focus, the primary calling, the primary mission of the church. And so today as we start 2019, I want us to just come back again and look at what is our true north to recalibrate and say, what is it that we must focus on? What is it that we can never lose sight of? And I want us to look not just at the fundamentals, but the fundamental focus of the church. 
The writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 11 this, this list of these men and women throughout church history, throughout the, the Old Testament, and throughout uh, the early church who were faithful and who finished the course and, and, and who, who kept the faith to the very end. Many of the stories we're familiar with, some we're not as familiar with, some are not even named, they're not given names, they're just talked about, these people who remained true and finished strong. And they finished strong sometimes in the midst of incredible adversity, sometimes in the midst of, of unanswered prayers and unfulfilled promises and, and persecution and even death, but they remained strong. And we look at these people and we, we know their stories and we hear how they just kept the faith all the way through and it's inspiring and it's challenging. And the writer of Hebrews says, so therefore since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these people who kept the faith all the way through, let us throw off everything that hinders, those things that distract us and the sin that easily entangles us, the things that can derail us. Let's get rid of those things and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And then he gives a clue of how it is that they were able to finish strong and how it is that we can keep focused and, and finish strong as well. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not just a passing glance, not just a nod, but to fix our eyes, to focus on, to, to set clearly on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to look at him. And it's not just this, okay, well, we, yeah, we say we look at Jesus and we've got his name on our plaque and those kind of things. But to fix our eyes on Jesus is to engage with Jesus. It's to cooperate with Jesus. It's, it's to partner with Jesus. It's, it's, it's to, to uh, be a part of connection with him and what he's called us to do. The importance of fixing our eyes on Jesus and letting us not get distracted from that. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he was calling them into this world-changing, eternity-altering kingdom, he points out how important it is that they keep themselves fixed with Jesus, and he uses this picture, this analogy that would have been really clear to them. They would have seen this kind of thing in the day-to-day -day life. In John 15, when he says that I am the branches, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Fix your eyes on me. Apart from me, it's not gonna work. You're not gonna have any fruit of any lasting value, anything of any significance if you stray away from me. So stay connected with me. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Later in the same passage, he said, I've called you to bear fruit and fruit that will last, not just for a decade, not just for a lifetime, but for eternity, that the outcome of the life that you live and what you're called to would last for eternity. And here at Cornwall, there's a phrase we use about our mission is that our whole purpose is to glorify God by altering the spiritual landscape one life at a time through Jesus. Some of you have heard us say this before, you've maybe read it before, uh, you know about this. A couple of years ago, there was someone who said, you know, you talk about altering the spiritual landscape, I don't even know what that means. Well, let me kind of explain this just briefly. The whole idea of glorifying God is that at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, the only one that should be exalted is God. The only one that should be praised is God. Everything we should do is about praising and glorifying God. But to alter means to change and to change in a positive direction. This is where it was, this is where it is, this is where it's going, and it's a positive change, not a negative change. To alter the spiritual landscape is beyond just our physical world, the material world, the visible world, but things in the realm of the spiritual level, things that are eternal, 
One life at a time means this is personal. This isn't just a, a program. This is something we each experience, we, we're each involved in, in, in every single person. It's very personal, and it's through Jesus, unapologetically. We're not just talking about some cosmic mindfulness or meditative awareness of something or one size fits whoever. We're talking unapologetically. It's about Jesus and through Jesus. A way to summarize this is it's a transformational relationship with Jesus, transformational, that this relationship with Jesus is not merely informational. Now, it's important to, inf- to have information, to know, to learn, to understand, to grow in our knowledge and understanding of Christ, but that's not where it ends. That information has to be related into transformation, a change of who we are, what we do, what we're about, our whole direction in life. It's not just a traditional connection with Christ. And and there's beautiful things about tradition. I love some of our traditions. But it's not just, yeah, we just do this because it's a ritual and we kind of go through the motions. It's a very traditional thing. It's not just this convenient relationship when we decide we want something or we need something that on our timeline that somehow it benefits us. This is a relational connection that transforms us into the men and women that we were created to be, that God called us to be, that Jesus died so that we could be. Let me give you an example of this. This is a, a part of an email that I received from a lady Uh, a little under a year ago. She said, I didn't grow up in a religious family. Although my grandparents were Lutheran and drugged my brother and I along on special service days like Easter and Christmas Eve. I dabbled with the notion of God as a teen and even joined a youth group, but had no idea what I was searching for. A life of abuse, rough relationships, and severe trust issues made it really hard for me to find faith, so I stopped trying. Now I'm almost 40, And over the past five years or so, I've begun to be drawn to Jesus. I I struggled for about three years to let myself have faith in anyone or anything other than myself, to let go and begin to trust that I'm not alone. I doubted faith, or, or better yet, doubted my ability to give up control of my life. This past year, I returned to Cornwall, and with with an unknown, sudden, and pressing urge to let myself be vulnerable, I began to see Jesus change me. Church and the work of God in me have made me, surpri- has, has made me make surprising leaps in my trust that I am not alone. The Pray First series did amazing things for my working relationship with Jesus. I've learned to pray, to make it a part of my daily life. I, I study my sermon notes and have even joined a small group. I'm loving the changes I am seeing in myself now that I, have, now I know that Jesus is in my, by my side. I have a lot of growing yet to do, but I am so ready to declare my love for Jesus to everyone. Jesus gives me comfort and strength. He listens to me and lets me give him my problems. He hears me. Ever since I opened my heart to him, I feel such a heavy burden has been lifted from my shoulders. I feel this peace and love. And now that I've found Jesus, I don't want to imagine my life without him being a part of it. Now that I've found Jesus, I I feel freed. I have a a lot of growing left to do, things to learn so that I can better my situation and walk in a straighter uh, path to Jesus. But I'm excited to get there. I now look forward to my time in church, time with my new small group, talking about Jesus, teaching with my fiance, and talking to God one-on-one. That's a transformational relationship with Jesus. 
This is where I was. I found Jesus. This is where I am. This is where I'm going. I'm not there yet. In, in uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter uh, 3, verse 18, he says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed, being, present tense, con- continually. We're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's the call for every single one of us, that we are on this journey, that we are being transformed more into the character of Christ. That's the call for us as a church, that together we are being transformed into the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church that Jesus longs for us to be. And he says, as you are transformed and I'm transforming you, as the church is transformed, you are to be a transformation agent so that you would bring that transformation into this world, bring the kingdom so that the world would be transformed, that the kingdom would come to bear on this earth. That's what he calls us to, that it's his life of transformation. And it's all through Jesus. You know, unless you've just started uh, worshiping with us in the last month or two, the rest of you are aware that, that la- or, or if you haven't, most of you are aware <laughs> that last summer, uh, the church very generously uh, allowed me to have a sabbatical. Three months where I could unplug and just detach and just not be, you know, not have the daily duties of, of being a pastor here. It was a great gift and thank you so much. During that time, there was this confluence of about four realities that created for me, I would say a defining moment, but it was a defining season. It wasn't just this one moment, but there were these, these realities that all came together. One of the, some of them were benchmark realities for me. One of them is that right, right before I left in May, the week before I went on sabbatical, um, it was a benchmark for me that I celebrated 25 years being the senior pastor of Cornwall Church. And, and many of you were here and we had a great celebration. I was honored by that and humbled by that. It was amazing. But that was one of those times as I went into this sabbatical, I, I began to think about, I've been their senior pastor for 25 years. It's such a long time. It's a quarter of a century. Some of you weren't even born then. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's just struck by this. Well, the week after we left, we went, uh, my wife and I went to, to uh, Europe, to Spain, and to France for seven weeks. And while we were gone, there was another benchmark, another, another reality that was part of this confluence. And that is that I turned 55. So I truly can be the senior pastor of this church and go to Denny's and get the, the whole thing. You know, just, it, it is but as I began to think about these two things, man, I've been the pastor of the church for a quarter of a century, such a long time. Man, I'm 55, and I began to put these things in perspective and, and, and thinking about the ministry here, and it really was a time to really reflect personally, just you know, with my life turning 55, and I'm not an overly introspective person, but I had hours every day to just think and thinking about, man, I'm 55 years old, and, and I've been the senior pastor for this long time, a quarter of a century, began to think about things vocationally, began to think about things pastorally, what have we done over the last 25 years? And then it struck me, man, if I were to be 25 years again, more in this church as a pastor, if the Lord and the board would allow, I mean, I would be 80, who would want an 80-year-old pastor? So I backed it up from there, and like, what if, I, what if I just was a pastor for another 10 years? I'd be 65, how could I be that old? It's just like, I was struck by the reality of all this, and I was really, really hit with this whole thing of my longevity here at this church, and my own mortality, not in a morbid way, not in a sad way, not in a negative way, in a very rich way, a very deep thinking way of like, wow, I have one life and I am 55. And I found myself saying the things that you old people say. 
Life goes by so fast. Where did it go? And I'm like, why am I saying this? Am I my mother? What is the story with this? And as I was reflecting on all of these things, there was this other reality because for the majority of that time we were there, my wife and I were walking the, the Camino de Santiago, this, this path across Spain, and we were just immersed in church history. And the reality that, that 25 years in ministry is really just, just like a blink of an eye when you look over these last 2,000 years. And, and to, to be immersed in, in our Catholic roots this long before the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic roots, our spiritual roots, and going back to roots I didn't even know I had, and finding this connection on a deep level, spiritually, seeing the Catholic roots for civilization and for our Western culture and the impact that that has had. And we would go to these little chapels, and we'd go to these churches, and we'd go to these grand cathedrals, these buildings, some of them that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it just put a time perspective that this church, this thing, this body of Christ has been going on not for 25 years, hundreds and thousands of years. And as we would go through these little towns, and we would read these little stories and, and hear about these priests who had served faithfully and selflessly, the, the bishops who were there, the popes that had come and gone. And it put this perspective in my mind that my little 25 years here is really just a drop in the bucket compared to what God has been doing for 2,000 years. And then to see the perspective of the church and what it has endured, what it's endured from the outside it, there in Spain, enduring the wars, enduring the pestilence, enduring the plague, in, enduring the enemies that would attack it, enduring all of these different things. And the history of the church as it's gone through different emphasis with doctrines and changes there and the Reformation, and then how the church has survived even as we've tried to self-destruct with the false teachers that have come and gone, with the, the factions and the cults, with the splits, with the crusades, uh, I mean, with the abuses of power, with the, the politicized power of the church, with the financial world. And in all this, the church remains and it just gave me this perspective beyond just 25 years at Cornwall. I, I get so myopic sometimes and just look at my little life and my little season and my little situation. And then there was this other reality that flowed in as well. That while we were walking the Camino, we were meeting people from all over world, the world, hundreds of people, many of them on a spiritual pilgrimage, many of them devoted to Christ, and most of them having not been raised in American, Protestant, conservative, evangelical Christianity like I was. And so their expression of their devotion to Christ, their methodology of worship, the way that they have this is different than mine, and I began to appreciate that maybe my way is not the only way to worship Christ. I'm not talking that in a universalist, let's all become Buddhist type guy. I'm just saying that I was there with, with Catholics and Presbyterians and Baptists and, and, and even Nazarenes. I mean, the whole thing, it was just, it was an amazing deal. And in all of these, these realities that flowed together and the time to just think and to look back on my life and ministry and to begin to see this, this thing called the church, the bride of Christ, and looking back over the history that here is the bride of Christ and if the church is the bride of Christ, this bride is battered, she is tattered, she is bloodstained, she is scarred, she's a mess in a dress, but Jesus loves her and he's committed to her and the most beautiful thing about the bride of Christ is the groom who loves her. That it's Jesus that makes the church even beautiful and it's Jesus that's always been in the middle and the one thing I came away with was the centrality of Christ. When the church flourished, Jesus was at the center. When the church floundered, it was still about Jesus. When the church 
he just took the kingdom of God and, and advanced it. It was about Jesus. And when the church embarrassed the kingdom of God, Jesus still loved it and was committed to it. It's a beautiful thing. And as I saw that in relationship, not only to church history, but to my life and to this church and what we're about, I just came back to this thing of we need to, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, it's Jesus who lasts. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the church. That's Jesus. Jesus is the great I am. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that was, is, and is to come. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the name above all names, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he might have the supremacy in everything. You have no rival, you have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. Somebody stop me. Glory. And I was just struck with this. That after my 25 years here, and after I come and go, because there will come a day when I'm no longer the pastor of this church, and there will come a day when I'm no longer alive, what will remain? Jesus. And the fruit that comes from being connected with him, and walking with him, and following him, submitting to him, partnering with him. Jesus is our true north. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Enter into this transformational relationship with Jesus because it's the centrality of Christ. Now, that's my introduction. <laughs> you don't have anywhere to go today. There's no games on worth watching. So I want to spend just a few minutes, really, um, looking at a passage of scripture out of 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible, your tablet, or your phone, you wanna follow along, we're just gonna look at a few verses. But it's in 1 Corinthians. Let me give you kind of the backstory on this. Corinth uh, is a town in Greece. And if you're familiar with Greece, uh, Greece is kind of like a, a two-balled snowman. There's the northern part of Greece. It's connected to the mainland of Europe and such, Asia Minor. And then there's the southern part, uh, Peloponnesian area, and then that which connects him, there's this little neck, this little land bridge. Uh, for those of you here in Bellingham, if you think the Simiamu spit, you know, there's just this little land bridge that goes out and connects. For those of you in Skagit, Samish Island, which isn't really an island. <laughs> Don't tell them that. It's connected with this little land bridge. So these two parts of Greece were connected with this land bridge. It's called an Isthmus I-T-H-S-M-U-S, Isthmus. And, and in that, it's about four or five miles wide, is Corinth. So all, all commerce and all travel north and south in Greece has to go through Corinth because it narrows down to this little, this little bottleneck, this, this you know, hourglass thing, and Corinth is there. And not only that, but the shipping trade, when it was going east and west, they found that it was far more efficient and economic if they would come into Corinth, unload their goods, walk across or haul it across the four or five mile land bridge, put it on another boat and go. So all the east-west traffic went through Corinth. So it's a very international city, people from all different cultures. And on top of that, 
It was a very athletic city. The Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympics, happened in Corinth. And Corinth became known as this hmm, kind of a uh, worldly, hedonistic culture. Like if I were to say to you, they really kind of live a Vegas lifestyle. That has some implications to it. And it's probably not Sunday school implications, depending on which Sunday school you went to. <laughs> but it, it kind of had this, Corinth had the same reputation. In addition to that, religiously, spiritually, up on the Acropolis, up on the, the hill above Corinth, was this temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, the sex goddess. And history books will reflect that during this season, in the temple of Aphrodite, uh, there were 1,000 temple prostitutes to help engage in the religious experience, as it were. So, very, very hedonistic, immoral, multicultural, worldly city. Probably the most unlikely place in all of Greece where the church would actually grow and, 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 and flourish. Where, where the message of Christ and Christianity would somehow survive in the backdrop of all this that's going on. Well, around the year 80, 50, and 51, Paul, the Apostle Paul, journeys to Corinth, and he spends 18 months there. And, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 18. I'll just show you one verse, Acts 18. It says, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. It's the centrality of Christ. It's this transformational relationship with Christ. And he not only goes to the Jews, but then he goes to the Greeks as well. And the most amazing thing is that in this unlikely setting, God does a work and there's a church that's born. And Paul spends 18 months helping them get established. Well, then he goes on to other missionary journeys and he's starting churches elsewhere. Five years later, AD 55, Paul writes some letters back to Corinth. He, he wrote four of them. We have two of them. The reason he wrote the letters is because Corinth was such a, if she was the bride of Christ, she was bridezilla. She was an absolute mess because the culture had made its way into the church and there was all these factions and these power struggles and all this immorality that had come into the church and he writes these letters to get them back on track. And in this first letter, he reminds them of the message of the cross, fix your eyes on Jesus. And how in their culture, while it seems so foolish, while the cross was a thing of weakness, that it was actually the wisdom of God and it was the power of God. And as he points them back to this cross that, that transformed their life, he writes these words, 1 Corinthians 1.25. It says, for the foolishness of God, talking about the Christ, uh, the cross of Christ, is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Remember, they're in Greece. In, in the Greek context, philosophy, ideas, thoughts, wisdom. This was, was all, you know, the, the, the birthplace of things like Aristotle, Socrates, you know, these kind of things, the, the, the Socratic method, all this stuff, this thinking. He says, in your world that is so filled with wisdom, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of this world. And those who see the cross, which was this, this horrible uh, execution is seen as weakness is actually the power of God. And, th and then he goes on this kind of this recitation of the inverted upside down way that God does things that's so illogical. He says, God 
has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He has chosen those things that are lowly and despised and are not to nullify the things that are. It doesn't make any sense. He says the reason he does that is because it's God's work and that way none of us can boast it's because of my wisdom. It's because of my strength. It's because of my status. It's because of what I have done. So it's God's work. So in verse 30 he says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the transformational one. He's the central one. And who you are, your identity is in Christ Jesus. It's not just what you believe, it's who you are. It's who you're being created to be. It's what God is doing, his work within you. You are in Christ. And he talks about this Christ who has become for us wisdom from God, not from the world, not from your philosophers. And I'll just tell you this. If you ever have to decide, will I follow the wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world, go with the wisdom of God. Go with the wisdom of God. It will serve you well. Maybe not initially, but in the long haul, it will serve you well. It says, Christ has become for us the wisdom of God. He says, let me tell you what I'm talking about. That is our righteousness. That, that Christ is our righteousness. You know, he would write later um, that, God, that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's Christ in us. It's what we've talked about, this imputed righteousness that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Jesus gives us that. And then he continues to transform us. He's our righteousness. He's our holiness. Paul would write to the church in Ephesus, you know, to, to, to put on the new nature, the new self, which is created to be like Christ in true righteousness and holiness. This idea of holiness is to be set apart for God's purposes. This is why you were created. This is what you were designed for. And redemption. There is no other name given by which man must be saved. It's through Christ. And he just points them again. It's about Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Connect with Jesus. Engage with Jesus. Follow Jesus. Obey Jesus. Submit to Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. Be about the work of Jesus. And then he gets down to verse 2 of chapter 2. And this is what I love. It's his New Year's resolution. He says, for I resolved... I made this decision to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I could come at it from a philosophical angel angle. I, I, could, I could argue all day long. I'm coming to you with what the world would say is foolishness or weakness, but I'm telling you, it's what will change your life. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, we can look at this and say, well, that's fantastic for Paul and those, those uh, Corinthian Christians 2,000 years ago. But what about us in 2019? I mean, if it's always been about Christ, if Christ is the only one that can change, if Christ is the one who's created us, if Christ is the one who's called us, if Christ is the one who redeemed us, if Christ is the one who is sanctifying us, if Christ is the one who will glorify us, then this applies to us as well. And as we enter into this new year, that we as individuals get our true north back online as well. That we recalibrate and we refocus. And that this year, 
as individual followers of Christ, we would be about growing in Christ, becoming more like Christ, submitting, walking with Christ, worshiping Christ, learning about him and loving him more, understanding what it means to live in the grace of Christ and living that out each day, absorbing that truth and letting it become our reality, to surrender to him, to be growing in Christ as our true north. But not stopping there. It says those of us who have been transformed, who've experienced the goodness and the grace of Christ, that for others who don't yet know that, we'd be showing to Christ, showing them the way to Christ, showing them the beauty of Christ, showing them the love of Christ, showing them the grace of Christ, showing them the life in Christ. That's what we're called to, because that's what Christ did. In 25 years, I've been preaching sermons here, preached on all kinds of topics, preached on different passages, done character studies, done book studies, preached on certain passages, certain chapters, certain prayers, certain psalms. And I realized one thing, in 25 years, a quarter of a century as your pastor, I've never ever preached through one of the gospels. Why, I'm not entirely sure. So starting next week, I and Pastor Brian and Pastor Kip are gonna be preaching through the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark has 16 chapters, and for the next 15 weeks, almost a chapter week, won't line up exactly, but between now and Easter, which is 15 weeks from now, we're gonna walk through the book, the Gospel of Mark. Now here's the cool thing, as we look through this, the title of the series is called, Jesus is the Subject, because it's all about Christ. He's our true north, he's who we fix our eyes on. And we're gonna just kind of be walking through this. And 15 weeks from now, when we get to, to Mark chapter 16 on Easter Sunday, you know what I'm gonna preach on? Yeah, chapter 16, Easter, the resurrection. It's not that difficult. But we're just gonna spend the whole uh, next 15 weeks just walking through this biography of Christ. Now listen, you might sit there today and you might say, you know, Bob, this is, this is all great. I'm glad you had those epiphanies last summer and these defining moments and great, stick around as long as they'll let you hear whatever. You know, it's all good. You keep the church on track. Let me remind you who the church is. Let Paul remind you, as he reminded the Corinthians, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. For Cornwall Church to be the church that Jesus dreams of it being, it's not just about me and the pastors and the elders. It's about every single one of us who are followers after Christ, keeping Jesus as our true north, entering in and engaging intentionally in this transformational relationship with him, keeping him central in our lives. And what if, what if as we start this new year, that every individual, every single one of us just resolved, I am gonna fix my eyes on Jesus. I'm gonna allow his work to transform my life. I'm gonna grow in Christ and to the best of my abilities in this world that desperately needs the light of Christ. I'm gonna show the way, I'm gonna show his love, I'm gonna show his grace. That in the grand scheme of things, in the church history, in the 2,000 years, and here we are in this tiny little northwest corner of Washington, that the kingdom of God 
would go forward. And while we may feel like a little puzzle piece in a million piece jigsaw, God says, I have called you for such a time as this.